Yes, welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Gage Clark. is episode four. Now, that might be a little bit confusing because there was an episode four. I'm not sure how many people saw that, but I am going to take that down. I already have. I don't know if iTunes has updated that, but I didn't actually like it too much. There was some, um, I went off uh, tangents a lot and sort of didn't realize it. And some of the topics, I think, were too vague and too confusing a little bit. And it didn't fully represent the way I think about it. So, um, I guess we'll start with a few updates. I've began doing a new type of blog series. Um... So I've had the Utopia series, and then a lot of regular blog posts intermixed. But now I'm starting one that's called Mindstream. This one will be pretty interesting. Um, It's a lot more artistic than my other posts so far. And maybe I'll uh, update or in the future of my regular posts, maybe I'll add some more artistic elements as well. But as for now, it looks like I'm going to mostly do that with the mind stream, where it's the the series is basically going to be me researching through rabbit holes and um, artistically expressing this with weird layouts in the style of the blog to make it more interesting and it'll be more um, uh, I wouldn't say first-person perspective but it's gonna be um, I'm gonna use the word I and talk about my feelings on the topics and stuff like this so that will be pretty interesting and as for today's topic I think I'm going to just go into a lot of different psychological things. There's some updates I need to make on my animal cognition argument, and there are um, there's a new abstraction post I made that I want to kind of explore the ideas in that as well. And possibly I'll be telling you some of the uh, future articles that I'm working on right now, including a really interesting one for the fourth iteration of Utopia. This one is going to be really fun. It's going to be different than the usual ones, more sci-fi a bit. And so, I guess here we go. Let's begin. So, let's begin with the updates to my animal cognition post. 
I've added an IQ section because I've had some debates and it's frequently brought to my attention that chimps have a average IQ, an average IQ of 70, and humans, of course, have a an average of 100 IQ. So my first problem is that I think IQ tests measure more than intelligence. I think they might measure intelligence, but that they measure other things as well that could arguably not be intelligence. So one of the things is that it might be measuring um, the consequences of the environmental factors that it's correlated to. So for example, wealth might be uh, correlated to higher IQ and this could be for environmental reasons. Um, access to knowledge is the obvious one. Someone who could buy more books might be more influenced by those books. And access to knowledge in general, I would say, is a major factor in IQ. And this brings us to what is known as the Flynn effect. The Flynn effect, let me pull it up right here. So the Flynn effect is about a long sustained increase in both fluid and crystallized intelligence, um, roughly from the 1930s to the present day. They've observed uh, increases in IQ since then, which is when they started measuring it, I'm guessing. Um, there's, in the Wikipedia article, there is some mention about environmental factors, and what's commonly brought up is uh, racial differences in IQ, which I personally think can be easily explained by environmental factors. So, for example, I think some of the studies tried to control for that, originally suggesting that um, we could say that African Americans were something like 20 years behind sociologically compared to the white culture. And the problem is, so they found that it even with that factored in, it doesn't fix the difference fully. And I think the problem here is that that doesn't really um, address so much of the factors. It doesn't address the um, social differences of a, uh, of your, uh, if you're African American, your parent and their parents and their parents and eventually it leads back to a pretty negative place and I think it's absurd to assume that the consequences of that would be resolved just in a few generations especially when you're comparing to um, another ethnicity which has um, been not even in the same uh, environmental circumstances in the last uh, couple generations. So, and I think 
that even if there were there was people mentioning stuff about uh, kids being adopted into white families, for example, I think that doesn't fix everything still because there is these kind of subconscious um, biases still residually in our culture uh, that influence how we interact with different ethnic groups and stuff like this. So I think when you consider the massive environmental impact that in the end it doesn't um, or no, that chimps' environments would definitely be nothing like humans. Even if they train the chimps to be better at taking IQ tests, that would only work if you're comparing it to humans that have also only been trained to take IQ tests. I think that our whole culture and societies are built upon a lot of what the IQ tests are trying to measure. So having a constant daily exposure to cultural norms that facilitate training of IQ is a major factor. Another issue is that if you've read my ideas on creativity in the last few episodes, you know that I think it boils essentially down to risk-taking and novelty-seeking. Though I'm starting to realize that there could be a couple different things involved that could lead to creativity with exploratory behavior being the primary factor. So if you consider risk-taking by itself, the risk-taking, though each risk one could take might seem like a universal uh, aspect at first glance. Um, each risk is actually uh, a varying amount of riskiness depending on the environment that you're in. So, for example, the most obvious would be wealth, where someone with more money, for example, could gamble more money before they hit rock bottom, whereas someone with less money would much more rapidly reach the bottom. So if you consider that risks have the potential to take you forward or take you back, the ones who are more further back would have less opportunity to take risks, which would, in my theory, result in less capacity to reach a state of higher pattern recognition if my theory is true that pattern recognition depends on the behavioral um, experiences that you gain from taking risks and experiencing novelty. Another thing that was brought to my attention by a friend of mine is that I used the term dexterity, which in the last uh, episode that I talked about animal cognition, and the problem with this is that it argue a dexterity itself is arguably a form of intelligence or uh, that it depends on intelligence, and I completely agree to this. I would say that 
I would change my position from not using dexterity as the example, but perhaps just having hands in general. So for example, um, the example used was that dexterity was not a an aspect of cognition and under the normal definitions of intelligence it says the ability to apply knowledge which requires dexterity to some degree to handle tools and other things like this or pencils even so I can switch the dexterity point with um, having hands as the trait where if you lack hands by the definitions provided by search engines for intelligence that you would be at a decreased state of intelligence because you have less ability to apply uh, knowledge. So I think it's really awesome that people are actually correcting me on this stuff. It's very useful. So please, if you notice things, I would love it if you can contact me. That would be amazing. So I think before I continue, I should clarify some of the points about risk-taking. Just in case this is your first episode, I'll give a brief overview. I think that the link between risk-taking and creativity that is found in research is based on... Um, basically, I think that those who... T uh, well... Let's start here. If you separate the events that you experience on a daily basis as either familiar or novel events, and this includes your thoughts, so new thoughts versus familiar thoughts, we already know about the contents of familiar. By definition, that is what it means to be familiar. So when we choose to take familiar paths in life and thought. It is a safer option in general because we can already predict the safety of it for the most part unless we have a false understanding of it. But in general we've already determined familiar things as safe or unsafe so this is why we would be more evolutionarily prone to clinging to more um, familiar uh, environments and familiar things in general. So, but there is a portion of society that has an increased tendency towards risk-taking and creativity is correlated to these people as well. So my idea is that risk-taking means you're more willing to explore novel paths which are undetermined to be safe or unsafe yet and this is what allows for discovery because that's the basis of discovery is exploring what you have not yet discovered if you define familiar as the already discovered so the next part is that if you imagine taking a path to work every day. Imagine you take the same path over and over. We know that memory is increased with repeated exposure to a stimuli, 
And so you would tend to slowly learn the more nuanced details of the path if you keep repeatedly being exposed to it. And so imagine now that if you took a different path to work each day, a new path each day, you are not getting um, repeated exposure to the stimuli, especially these nuanced details. So, and I think the basis of what is considered nuanced or not is actually dependent on how familiar a stimuli is, which will make sense in a moment. So try to keep following this idea. So imagine you're taking new paths every day to work and so you're not being exposed to the same stimuli in some sense, but it would be absurd to think that each new path you take is completely novel. That isn't how reality works, but that would be pretty amazing. But um, each path will still have some resemblance of the next path, and there are a lot of similarities between different experiences, paths, or anything in general within our reality that we live in. So it would make sense that the stimuli that we remember is, again, the repeated stimuli, the repeatedly exposed stimuli, which would then mean that we form an awareness of a memory of the similarities between paths and probably the implications that those similarities have. So for example, we can begin to correlate uh, similarity A with uh, similarity B because we might find that A and B always coexist within paths, new paths. So I think this is the basis of pattern recognition. And I think that when you do this, not with your actions, but with your thoughts instead, so when you think a new thought every moment, that the same kind of effect occurs, which I think is the basis for abstract thinking, where you will begin to notice the similarities and overlap of concepts and be able to reduce and simplify things. So when you first see a dog, for example, you might see every dog is a unique animal, but, um, there's also the possibility, I think, I think there's a aspect of cognition that controls how um, fuzzy we experience everything. So I think that, okay, for example, like a child, um, a child has only experienced novel experiences since they have not yet experienced reality itself. So that means that they would actually form pattern recognition first, I suspect. And so a dog and a cat might be considered the same creature to them because they are both furry and that they have not yet found nuances and details to memorize of the differences between these objects. So in some sense, the child will have too much pattern recognition and too much abstraction of their awareness of everything. And this is probably why um, people would think children are more creative than adults. And so I think in your thoughts when this happens, it's basically how abstraction forms. 
And this is going to be a topic that we go into more heavily. And I guess we might as well start now. Um, well, actually, let me just finish this bit about the IQ just to finish it up. I think you guys understand the pattern recognition bit at this point. And IQ tests do seem to really heavily test for pattern recognition, which is dependent on the ability to take risks because exploring new environments, you eventually will um, uh, encounter mistakes. If, if you continue to explore random caves, you're bound to find some kind of uh, dangerous experience. But if you just stay at home all day, that's considered a safe option, right? So I think the ones with more money and more social security and more um, anything that can facilitate their ability to take risks without as much consequence is a huge factor in how people will develop pattern recognition. And I think that the adults who are not uh, wealthy enough to take these kind of risks or not willing to because um, I think if you consider that children start highly abstract because everything is novel, eventually you will learn so much that a lot of things are not novel. And if the adult who reaches this point decides to stay in their house every day, then they will be exposed only to familiar stimuli for a majority of their experiences. And I think that at that point, that's when fluid intelligence begins to degrade, and I think there's some evidence out there that as you age, fluid intelligence decreases and crystallized intelligence increases. I think, uh, well, I'm not going to go on that tangent. So, so it would make sense that people with more wealth and more social support would have a better opportunity to take risks in general and explore and not only this they will have the money to travel they'll have the money to try new things and more things than a poor person is even capable of trying so there's there's a lot to that which can explain a lot of the differences that are environmental for iq now i think there's other aspects. So, for example, I think there is a genetic component to risk-taking that is linked to um, certain dopamine receptors that I've mentioned before. Specifically, the D4 dopamine receptor is involved in novelty-seeking, risk-taking, and uh, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, and ADHD. I think all three of those, but at least bipolar and ADHD have an increased D4 density. Okay, so let's see. I think that pretty much clears my point on IQ test. I think another factor is motivation to take the test, which is a huge factor. And some have argued that uh, consuming cannabis, the reason that it might decrease IQ scores it has to do with the motivational blunting effect, 
which might make sense, and that could also explain why schizophrenics would also have decreased IQ scores to some degree. It gets weird there, though. With schizophrenia, they do know that they have... Um, uh, what is the word? They have... I don't know if it's avolition. Um, anhedonia, they have that, um, where they don't experience motivation properly. They have decreased motivation and a kind of numbness to motivation. And a lot of people get that type of effect with cannabis as well. So I think I'm going to move on to um, abstraction a little bit. So to start with abstraction, let's consider the idea of my example of how pattern recognition develops. Imagine that for most people, they might think familiar thoughts a lot. They might um, ruminate over the same type of issues. And I just had an epiphany. I know that people with OCD, there's a link between intelligence and OCD. And I think rumination is a major factor in that disorder. But it's also very similar to schizophrenia and even includes an overlap of symptoms such as hearing voices, which is really interesting. So what if people with OCD, the major difference is that they might ruminate, which protects them against becoming overly abstract, which will be explained in a moment. Now to go on to the core concept uh, without all this tangentialness. I think abstraction reduces the specificity and decreases awareness of the contradicting information between concepts. And I think this happens when you are exploring new thoughts too much, if there is a such thing. I think it's actually culturally dependent whether or not that's good. But let's see so yes imagine that you think new thoughts every day you would only uh, have a memory for uh, the things that are overlapping because those are the repeatedly exposed stimuli and with this i think if you consider the use it or lose it concept where if you don't use information in your brain that you will be bound to forget it. I think that as you explore new territory constantly, that the things that are different between concepts will logically be the least repeated stimuli because those are the things that don't overlap, which means I think you will eventually lose memory for these things. And with schizophrenia, this is very interesting because they experience what is called neuronal pruning, where, uh, which is usually what happens to kind of erase junk memories from your mind somewhat, or unused memories. 
And I, uh, there is also brain shrinking involved in schizophrenia, which I think is actually related to this pruning effect. And I think I've seen data suggesting hyperconnectedness in schizophrenia. Okay, so yes, I've just checked, and hyperconnectedness is associated to schizophrenia and also epilepsy, which is pretty interesting. So I think that as the brain starts to connect different concepts based on their similarity, and the more that you explore things, you begin to find very universal patterns. And I think that for most people that don't reach these levels of abstract awareness, that they can't even really fathom these type of understandings. And I think that it's arguable that if the language that we're using doesn't isn't based on a schizophrenic understanding, that there might not even be language for the concepts that many schizophrenics think, and that this might pose deep communication problems for individuals with this disorder. So, I guess I should bring back my bar experience example of how abstraction facilitates agreeableness. So let's say you go to a bar with a friend and both of you agree that the experience is amazing. The experience you both agree upon is not really the same experience, making it illogical to agree upon. You may enjoy the music and the people while your friend may enjoy the food and the alcohol. And somehow you are both convinced that you agree on some mutual fact. Reducing our awareness of this level of logic benefits groupthink and benefits openness. This is an aspect I think is critical to the concept of domestication and submission. So in its abstracted form, we could say two people have experience A. Experience A is comprised of X and Y, which might we could say X is food and Y is music for simplicity's sake. Person one enjoys X, but dislikes Y. Person two enjoys Y, but dislikes X, which is opposite. So, Person 1 and Person 2 both concede that Experience A is enjoyable. Experience A does not exist in physical reality, but X and Y both do exist in physical reality. So this idea that they concede to something that is not physically real, but fundamentally completely disagree on what is real, demonstrates how abstraction can facilitate agreeability and I think that a huge part of this is actually what facilitates language as well. So with language and communication in general, there is more than just this agreeability. There is also the fact that abstracting things can simplify concepts to be easier to not just understand, but also to communicate we communicate highly complicated topics 
using very little amounts of sounds from our mouth. So, for example, in the blog post on this topic, I posted a picture of Henry Beck's famous representation of the London Underground. In this map, they abstracted the layout so that it was easier to understand by passengers. And this is interesting because the designers would have value in understanding the physical real version or the more physically real version of the map, the more accurate version. Whereas the consumer just needs to understand a simple version for efficiency and communication. So here is an example of an abstraction versus non-abstraction communication. Imagine um, that when you look at each dog, you look at it as individual as it actually is, and no longer categorize it as a dog, but instead look at it as its individual self. And imagine that instead of saying to your friend, hey look, here's a dog, you say, hey look, here is a 1.5 million haired brown, yellow, pink, black, white, almost white, semi-gray, 1.5 foot creature standing in position X, coordinate 1.092390230, and Y coordinate 2.092375389. Now, you can see how um, abstraction facilitates communication in this example. It's pretty obvious, and how absurd it would be if we gave the more accurate representation of reality. And in my argument for chimp intelligence, I suggest that they might experience less abstraction and also thus less agreeability, and that... Um, that their perspective would actually be more accurate but less communicatable, more specific and less abstract. So another thing that's interesting about abstraction is the idea of weaponized abstraction. I think that sophistry or fallacious argumentation uh, is very often weaponized abstraction. So there is one example I call dishonest agreeability, which is where an accidental agreement may occur, like in the example of the bar experience, but then there's also the possibility that our brain may tend to purposely reach dishonest abstractions like this on purpose for the uh, sake of manipulating our social environment to our advantage. I think a good example of this might be straw man arguments where you abstract the opponent's argument and reduce it and simplify it by removing the details that are benefiting their 
argument and only leave the absurd details that uh, refute their position or make it seem very easy to refute. We essentially are cherry-picking all of their weakest uh, argumentation factors of their position. Um, now, let's see. I think I'm going to move on. There's some more interesting things here where there's this concept of cognitive ease and cognitive strain where I think cognitive ease and strain have to do a little bit with our mood. I think they have to do with whether or not we face a problem that we're confronting or if everything is just laid back. And so cognitive ease is associated with creativity and cognitive strain is associated with critical thinking. I think that critical thinking has us focus on the differences between uh, ideas, which is less abstract, so that we can debate better, for example, we can critically analyze arguments, we can more uh, more accurately find solutions to problems that we're facing by fully breaking down the problem. And then cognitive ease would um, allow us to free associate without trying harder to intentionally force any kind of um, thinking, I suppose. And um, I think that cognitive ease actually facilitates abstraction in essence, and that uh, cognitive strain kind of de-abstracts things. I think there must be some mechanism in the brain. I'm actually currently researching that right now. One of my current theories that I'm about to, I guess I might as well just get into that. Um, so I found this guy on the internet called Q4LT. It might be a clever way of uh, making the name quality, not sure. And this guy brought to my awareness the concept of what he describes as the endowaska system, which is a, uh, it's based off the word endogenous, which means internal, as in within our own body, and ayahuasca, which is a combination of DMT, a psychedelic, and what's called a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, which prevents the breakdown of DMT. And DMT is known to exist within our pineal gland, and they don't really know, researchers don't really know what the role in the body would be. Um, and there's also uh, endogenous MAOIs in the body, so endogenous monoamine oxidase inhibitors which prevent the breakdown of this DMT. And it's known that the MAOIs release when uh, during stressful situations. I don't think they have information of when DMT releases. I'm not sure yet. 
But this idea is really fascinating, so I began to research it and see if I could find anything in relation to um, a lot of the stuff I'm interested in. So for uh, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, ADHD, domestication, sociability, all these different things. I tried to research and see if I could find a connection. And interestingly, I did find some evidence, and I formed a hypothesis for bipolar disorder that it might be a disorder where an individual keeps reaching uh, psychedelic states without drugs, essentially, um, and that that is what mania could be. Um, if you would like to read that whole article, it's called DMT Above Awe. It's on my blog. I will put the link to that in the description of this podcast. So I began by searching about psychotic depression, which is a very interesting state because it's not associated with the typical psychotic disorder, schizophrenia. It's actually only associated with bipolar disorder and major depression for some reason, at least according to Wikipedia. I don't know if that is very accurate, and I don't even know if psychotic depression is really a uh, its own th- state of mind. It might just be something that people decided to uh, name a state. But anyways, I searched it anyway, and first I tried searching a few wrong things, but eventually I came to something very interesting. I found out that this stress system in the brain known as the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, or HPA axis for short, is associated with um, psychedelic drugs, that there is an increase in activity associated with as an increase of activity in the HPA axis associated with the psychedelic drug DOI. And so this gets more interesting because there are some associations with bipolar disorder and depression with um, the HPA axis and I also found, I forgot to mention this first, first I found a, a theory of psychotic depression, or a hypothesis of psychotic depression that states that it's, uh, it's a state that's correlated to high HPA axis activity, which overlaps with this idea of psychedelic um, drugs inducing high activity in the HPA axis. It's also known that the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex of major depression people and bipolar people has Mm -hmm. a decrease in the psychedelic receptor, which is interesting because it might mean that there's a hyperactivity of some kind of internal psychedelic effect going on that is causing the receptors to decrease and it could explain a lot of their symptoms and then it got 
even more interesting as I found um, that I found that a lot of research has been done on the psychedelic receptor and also another serotonin receptor called serotonin 1A. Uh, they're both the psychedelic receptor and this 1A receptor are involved in um, socialization. So there was studies that found that an increase in 1A um, activity, I think it's either activity or density. I need to still research this stuff. So none of this is really complete right now. But um, something about the 1A is implicated in aggression behavior. And 2A is also implicated in social behavior. Um, both of those receptors are implicated in schizophrenia and autism, which has been proposed as a spectrum of autism to schizophrenia is essentially a spectrum from non-domesticated to hyper-domesticated individuals according to theories at least. And so it gets really interesting because this might mean that the molecule that causes um, that uh, causes socialization might be DMT in the brain. Basically, I think these receptors, these serotonin and DMT activated receptors are possibly what controls the behavioral differences to whether someone is sociable or not. And so this might fit pretty well in this theory of abstraction. And it gets more interesting because previous theories I've made about what psychedelics are doing has stated that I think that they... Uh, so in psychotic individuals, we find that there's decreased optical illusions and that um, psychotomimetics, or drugs that essentially mimic schizophrenia, uh, block glutamate activity at the NMDA receptor specifically. And so that would be drugs like ketamine, PCP, stuff like this. And then psychedelics have a function that's essentially opposite to these drugs. And so if you imagine that um, these drugs might reduce illusions by reducing glutamate and that this, this in itself might give evidence that psychedelics actually increase the development of optical illusions. And this is where it gets interesting. So... I think that our perceptions are layered where at the very beginning we just see pixels of vision and at the very top we form memories of, that essentially are the basis for why object recognition works and line detection and um, a lot of this stuff. I think we store data based on exposed repetition of those stimuli that we tend to notice a connectedness of uh, lines, for example, that each pixel is actually always continuously behaving on some kind of axis, I suppose, a perceptual um, 
a perceptual consistency that lines are stuck to each other, to themselves, and that objects are a whole thing that are separate from each other, that move as separate pieces, basically. And I think that the more that we are exposed, uh, we essentially increase glutamate activity, and or we, ex we increase the amount of glutamate repetition, maybe, is a better way of putting it. And glutamate um, is implicated in both perception and memory. It is the basis for both of these. And so I think the top layer of perception is essentially built upon optical illusions and that when you decrease perception with anesthetics, which is the glutamate blockers, you first begin by reducing the top layer of perception, which would be the optical illusions. So then you would actually find an enhanced perception as you go down this uh, spectrum of anesthesia. And eventually you'd probably reach a point where you cannot uh, use object recognition or line detection. And many people who take these drugs recreationally might assume that they're seeing optical illusions as this happens. Um, I think that you can see optical illusions in the course of taking these drugs. I think it gets really complicated as, for example, low doses of these tend to increase glutamate release, so that would actually increase glutamate activity first until so much has been blocked that that it's not really more glutamate activity anymore. There's also the fact that as the drug wears off, that you would begin to form much more illusions again. And so I theorize that psychedelics, they, they basically, they cause glutamate release. This is known. And I suspect that this uh, can explain a lot of the effects. For example, the effects of breathing walls that is commonly reported. I think that is the same as the after motion illusion, where if you stare at moving pictures that are consistently moving, like a like a lot of people will talk about Guitar Hero or staring at a sidewalk in one spot as you're walking along it, and then looking at uh, like a car or something like that, a stationary object, it'll begin to look as if it's moving farther away or that you're moving closer or something like this, or the walls will look like they're stretching. So I hypothesize that on psychedelics, the increased glutamate is going to increase the rate that illusions develop, which is essentially just saying that increased glutamate will lead to increased learning at a faster rate, and that your own breathing causes you to adapt your vision in a subtle way that actually warps the walls in a way that it looks like the walls are moving with your breathing in some sense. And I think it's tricky with psychedelics as well as how I, how I suggested that with anesthetics, as they wear off, you might actually get the opposite effect. The same thing would be true with psychedelic drugs, where um, as it's wearing off, you will probably begin to get anesthetic type effects as your brain is overworked and you're depleting glutamate 
resources and so it gets tricky and there might be like a spectrum or waves of effects of up and down and anesthesia and anti-anesthesia for both drugs it gets pretty tricky so uh, with that in mind I think that the idea of abstraction could apply here and that optical illusions are essentially just sensory abstractions and so our abstract thoughts are essentially just cognitive illusions and I think that I'm gonna work on trying to make a proof of this somehow so I don't know if you guys realize this but it's actually really hard to do these podcasts when I'm talking about all these crazy ideas even coming up with these ideas is very hard and I don't actually know what it's like to hear them it might be easy or not and I do mess up sometimes I can lose track of which words are the correct words to use the more uh, the deeper I go into it my grammar might get a little weird um, so sorry for that um, so I just wanted to uh, leave off with um, check out my new music video on uh, the Above Awe track I recorded it in a, a room full of mirrors and that was pretty interesting it was in Bombay Beach there was an art house that was curved mirrors all over the walls and that was super fun and interesting so yeah here is the track above all, and I hope you uh, enjoy. Have a nice day.